days almost, just in that Genesis reading thing, how great is this? Um, you know, um, Josh's voice reminds me of someone, Fix-It Felix, just an Aussie version of Fix-It Felix, don't you reckon? He's not here, I was expecting to, to uh, have a bit of a laugh with him. Now, I don't know if this happens so regularly anymore, it's been a while since I've seen it, um, which is the hashtag blessed post on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Maybe that says more about just how often I'm on socials, Um, not much anymore. But um, often it's attached to, you know, opulent holidays, um, expensive restaurants, uh, maybe a new home purchase next to the the purchased sign. Uh, Maybe it's just a picture of a happy family, hashtag blessed. Or significant accomplishments like finishing uni, completing the degree, or maybe it's getting a job promotion, hashtag blessed. The message is clear, right? We feel blessed when we have these things. And if you flip it the other way around, we feel cursed when we don't have these things. Although I've never seen a hashtag cursed post. Now, we can write it off quickly as worldly thinking, can't we? But how easy it is to start thinking in this way. We can begin to yearn for these things and resent the fact that we don't have them. And we can imagine that when we do have the holiday, the fun, the the family, the fancy restaurant, or get the promotion, or start a family, that our life will be so much better for it. Wouldn't these things be a blessing? In our passage today, we hear of a blessing from God, but not much detail about what that blessing is. It's a little bit ambiguous. Or is it? Is it? That's what we're going to explore this morning as we go through Genesis 11 and 12. So have your Bibles open at chapter 11, verse 10. And the first thing I want you to see, if I can chuck this slide up, is... Is it going to go through? Hashtag bless. (laughs) The search for the seed. We've been on a search for the seed. In the midst of Adam and Eve's great rebellion and rejection of God, which brings in the reign of sin and death, there was a glimmer of grace. Do you remember it back in Genesis 3.15? In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, in Hebrew, the word seed is a bit like our English word sheep. It could mean lots of sheep, or it could just mean one sheep. And so here, is it lots of seeds or just one seed? Is this hostility between humanity, lots of seeds and the snake, or just one? Are we searching for that one bloke who's going to crush the serpent's head? Well, the second half of verse 15 helps us here. It says, "'He will strike your head.'" and you will strike his heel. He, not humanity, just one guy that we're looking for now. And so Genesis continues, and it's actually divided up by this whole huge stream of genealogies. You can see all the genealogies there, 2 verse 4, 5 verse 1, 6 verse 9, and we get to 10, I mean 11 verse 10 here, smack bam in the middle, which is where we're at today. And this, this is kind of interesting, right? The word genealogies actually captures what Genesis means. Genesis just means genealogy, right? 
And it's, it's interesting to see that this is how the book of Genesis is divided. Now, I'm, gonna about, I'm about to get a real, real nerdy on genealogies, right? So just a content warning. I'm going to chuck some graphs and pictures at you. Don't get worried, all right? I had a go at explaining this to my wife yesterday, and she was actually interested, so maybe I'll get a chance with you. Here it is. This is what I'm going to say. There's a difference between segmented genealogies and linear genealogies. Hold on. Stay with me. Don't, don't lose me yet, okay? I'm going to chuck up a picture. Here it is. A segmented genealogy is like a family tree, right? If you've ever seen Harry Potter, this is um, Sirius Black's family tree. It's awesome, right? Wouldn't you want that as your wallpaper across your house? And what a segmented genealogy is trying to do, it's trying to be as comprehensive as possible and pick up everything that's connected to your family. This is something that you might get if you do Ancestry.com, right? Now, if Genesis was trying to do this, the comprehensive genealogy of all humanity, our Bible would be a bit thicker than what it is, right, with the, I don't know, 14 billion people that have lived on the earth so far. We would have probably no forests left on the earth. Now, instead, Genesis gives us linear genealogies. So if you've got no clue what Harry Potter is, this is a picture of the difference between a linear genealogy and a segmented genealogy. And a linear genealogy is just giving you one bloke's son and the son that comes after the other son, okay? So, when we pick up in Genesis 11, verse 10, it says, These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived a hundred years and fathered Apakshad two years after the flood. And after he fathered Apakshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. See how the other sons and daughters, we're not really interested in them. They're kind of irrelevant. We don't care, right? But verse 12, Arpachshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. See, it goes from Shem to Arpachshad to Shelah, and it continues on and on. And there's a bit of a repeat pattern that we see emerging. And the point is that the author is not really interested in everyone else because... He's tracing the family line of the seed that we heard promised in Genesis 3.15. Looking for God's promise to be fulfilled. But occasionally we get a little bit more detail on a broader family and this is when we'll be spending a bit more time on some important characters. So if you come down to verse 27... You read more. Verse 27, these are the family records of Terah. This is almost a brand new genealogy that we start. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives, and Abraham's, Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran the father of both Milcah and Ishkar. Now, just stop there. Um, these are important people that we'll be spending more time with through, through the, um, the, the rest of the story of Genesis, although we're not going to be spending time in that in the rest of the sermon series. But in verse 30, we get even more detail than we've ever had before in these genealogies. Verse 30, it says, Sarai was unable to conceive she did not have a child. And this is a problem, isn't it? 
It's a problem that the rest of Abraham's story, well, much of it will be devoted to because if we're looking for the seed that comes from the line of Adam and Eve, this might all come to an end rather quickly. But verse 31, keep reading with me. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. This is good, right? They're obeying God's command to spread out over the land, especially after last week in the, the Tower of Babel, where the idea was to spread everyone over the land. Um, but when they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. And so the genealogy settles, right? It settles with the incomplete stories of Abram, Sarai, Lot, and Milcah. And the suspense, the cliffhanger that we're supposed to be biting our teeth is that Sarai is unable to conceive. She has no child. And it's not like you can just go, oh, okay, well, let's work our way back to Lot and trace the seed from Lot's family, right? Because, as we'll see in a moment... God commits to one family line. And it shows us more of the unstoppable nature of God and His promises and His faithfulness than anything else. And that's where I want to draw your attention to next. God and His promises. Come with me to chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll pick up there. Abram sa- uh, the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. Now, it's like there's no loyalty that's left unchecked in Abram's life. Instead of just saying, go, do you see how many layers God adds to it? He says, go, leave behind your land, your relatives, your father's house. It reminds me of Jesus when he says, if anyone wants to follow me, they must hate their father and mother. Abram's loyalties are being checked. Will he leave the land that he's familiar with, that he settled in with his father? What about his relatives? You know, all the support that he's had from Uncle Bob when they go fill up the well and water the sheep and shepherd them. Will he leave that behind? What about his father's household, the closest relationships he's had? Is he willing to leave those behind to the land that God will show him? And I just want to draw a few parallels between Abram and us as we go through this next section, right? Just like God wanted uncontested loyalty from Abram, he requires to sit on the throne of our lives not shared with anyone or anything else. I wonder, sometimes do we think that we can share the throne of our lives with God? You know, we can be in control of the things, of some things in our life, like maybe what we watch on Netflix or the opinions that we have on current affairs or politics. And God, He can sit in control of the the religious things in our life, like whether we go to church on a Sunday Well, we see the position that God takes in Abram's life. Leave everything in obedience to me. Abram's whole life is called on by God. So God says, 
Go out from your land and keep reading in verse 1 to the land that I will show you. Now again, why not just say where he's going straight away? Why not say to Abram, I'm going to take you to Madagascar. I'm going to take you to Nepal. That way Abram at least know where he's going. But again, it's another test of faith for Abram. Will he trust God even though he doesn't know where he's going yet? Will he allow himself to be wise, not with his own eyes, so that he can think and see and know what he thinks is good, but be wise in trusting himself to God, to be led by God, where God will take him? Now, we're faced with similar decisions every day. Will we be wise according to ourselves? Or will we be wise according to God, putting ourselves in his care and trust. Now we've got to remember a reality here. We are fallen to sin. We walk in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Can we trust ourselves to be the complete word of truth that we should listen to? If we are true to ourselves, will this lead us on a good path? We have to remember our sinful nature and the reality of Adam and Eve's sin. If we're going to find truth, it can't be from within ourselves. The infallible word of God, the word of truth, is where we need to go. And it's where we need to go because it's external to us. It doesn't, it's not from us. So we hold to it as God's divine word, external, to know what reality is, to teach us who God is and who we are in relation to him. If there's ever a competition between my thoughts, opinions and ideas and the word of God, the word of God must win. Now if Abram has doubts, about where God was taking him, Abraham is commanded to trust God's word more than his doubts. But if Abraham had anything to doubt about, it's what God says next, and it highlights for us that these promises are more about God and what God can do than what, who Abraham is and who, what he can do. So keep reading in verse 2 with me. It says... I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now, from a human perspective, these promises are impossible. Sarai is unable to have children. But God's promise here is more important than the seemingly impossible situation that Abram and Sarai are in. Keep reading. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now there's two parts to this promise in verse 3. The first is a promise like an alliance between kings. Your enemies will be my enemies. Your friends will be my friends. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you, treat you with contempt. And the second part of the promise is to bless the whole world through Abram. Now, aren't these promises just absolutely wild? For the holy God of the universe to commit himself in such a way to a sinful, ordinary bloke like Abram. 
Had Abram deserved God's attention in any way? Could Abram say, oh yes, I was expecting these promises to come along because of all the good things that I've done for God. Oh, thank goodness he's finally talked to me and said these things to me. No! Abraham is like anyone else in this side of the fall. Fallen to sin, corrupted, depraved human. This is evidence of God's mercy in the face of human sin. Can we in any way, deserve the work of the Spirit in our lives to move us to faith and repentance and belief in the promises of God? No, we we are just like Abram, wandering aimlessly in the expanse of human sin until God chooses us. It's God's pure act of mercy that that He makes promises to us and moves us to believe them. God does not need to show mercy to anyone. He could rightfully ignore humanity because humanity has rejected God and turned to their own ways. But God, in unfathomable mercy and grace, promises mercy in the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. And that this blessing that God promises to all nations would come through Abraham. And that's where I want to take your attention next. That God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, God's promise has been in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent and that this would be done through the seed of the woman. And this promises, and what I want to really work on is does this promise connect to the promise to bless the nations through Abram? Now, if they are, can we as Christians expect all the material blessings that Abraham had as well, that that he would be made great and have a land? Should we expect God's blessing for first home buyers? Is the serpent crusher connected to the blessing through Abraham and what part of God's promises are transferable to us? That's what I really want to work at. Now, the only way to know this is to look at how the Bible interprets itself. And sometimes connections from the the, the promises in the Old Testament to promises in the New Testament can be really tricky to work out and, and take a lot of work, and this is not one of them. Before I told you that it's a little bit ambiguous, I lied, it's not. <laughs> um, so what I want to do is take you to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll work at to see how Paul reads these promises that God makes to Abraham in the New Testament. So in Galatians 3, Paul writes in verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abram. Abraham. I'm getting so mixed up between Abram and Abraham. He made the promises in advance in the gospel to Abram. All nations will be blessed through you. Should sound real familiar, right? And he keeps on going in verse 13 then, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And if there's any doubt 
that there's a connection between the seed promised in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, and the promises to Abraham. Paul says a little further down in verse 16 that the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Singular. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, this is the connection that Paul makes, that the blessing to all nations of the earth, all people of the earth, is fulfilled in Jesus, when Jesus becomes a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. This is the promise of blessing that God makes to Abram for all peoples of the earth. Now, if this is your first time checking out the things of Jesus or Christianity, what I want you to hear is the things that I'm saying next. And I want you to hear it really loud and clear. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve to sin, humanity is born in sin, fallen short of God's perfect standards. And not only are we born in sin, but we continue in sin every day of our life. Every effort we make to be good enough for God's perfect standard is not enough. Our sin is too great. Our sin is too serious. And if you don't believe me, imagine if all your thoughts were broadcasted to your closest friends and family. Would you be comfortable with that? Would you be okay with that? I I know my thoughts, no, certainly not. Can you say that you're perfect? Now, if you do, you've got issues, and I'll refer you to a psychologist. We can compare ourselves, right, to the worst people imaginable, and I think when we do that, we compare ourselves to make ourselves look better than them, and and we think we must be pretty close to perfect because we're so much better than the worst people I can imagine. But on the scale of God's holiness and perfection and human sin and rebellion, we are only a fraction higher than the worst pedophile that you can think of. Such is the gap between human sin and depravity and God's holiness. And because of that, all humanity is cursed, separated from God. And if God didn't punish that sin by cursing humanity, it would say that he is not just. It would be like a policeman not caring about drink driving or a judge not worrying about a serial killer. Because God is holy and just, he must punish sin. Humanity must be cursed for breaking the commands and laws of God. There is no possible escape. But, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, I have this friend, he had um, an Islamic plumber come over to his house to do some work and he struck up a conversation about the things of Jesus with this Islamic plumber And the Muslim guy, he said, you know what, I've just never understood how it's fair that one man can be punished for the sin of another man. Maybe you've had that question before. How is that fair? That's what we have here in Galatians 3.13, isn't it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How does that work? Now, part of the answer uh, lies in being redeemed. 
Sin has been like a slave master who owns us and we have a debt that we cannot pay because we're not perfect. But Jesus pays the debt of that sin through the perfect life that he lives so that if we trust in his death on our behalf, our sin is paid for. But more than that, it's not that Jesus is just some ordinary bloke, some ordinary guy. He is a human, yes, absolutely, but he's also God. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's the moment when God absorbs his sin and wrath, his, sorry, his wrath against sin, he absorbs it in himself. God's anger against sin is satisfied so that anyone who trusts in Jesus' death for them is sheltered from God's anger because it's already been paid for in Jesus. That is the blessing promised through Abraham to all nations for the world. Have you trusted in Jesus' death for you? Can I encourage you, if you're you're still checking these things out, that this is the most important decision for you to make. You need to ask God for forgiveness for the sin in your life and give thanks that he's provided for in Jesus. Now, the hashtag blessed life is, um, it's not the job promotion. It's not the family or the holiday or the new home purchased. These are just trinkets compared to the blessing God has in mind through Abram. Now, are those other things bad? You know, the job promotion, family home, the holiday? No, you just don't have to make your life about whether you have them or not. If you do have them, give thanks to God. And don't let them make you forget about the blessing that is better that Jesus has, that we have in Jesus, like being redeemed from the curse of the law by Jesus and receiving the promised spirit through faith. And if you don't have those things, the hashtag, the so-called hashtag blessed life, you can know that you're not missing out. God has welcomed you into a bigger family and is preparing the best, most secure home for you where you'll live in perfect rest and peace, the best holiday ever, with peace with God who's created you. All these things are true now. You have a family sitting next to you that you have the greatest thing in common with, your faith in Jesus and the Spirit. You have peace with God now, no longer his enemy, condemned by sin. Your home is secure, prepared by Jesus who's gone ahead of us, These things are true now and they're true in still a greater way when we join Jesus in heaven. We can thank God for the blessing that he's prepared in advance through Abraham for us. Let me give thanks for that now and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've made promises to people. We thank you because you don't need to do this and it's your act of mercy and grace. Father, thank you that you're faithful, that you don't change, that you come through on your word and that we can see this through your son's death on the cross. We thank you that you've redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we can receive the spirit and know that you've prepared an inheritance for us in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.